Lord, strengthen our hearts that we might live for you and glorify your name. That's the uh, call on our lives today. It's a good place to be here this morning. Good place to be together. To have spent some time preparing our hearts by lifting up our voices to God, by praying, by interacting with one another together. Wonder, um, I wonder if you've ever been betrayed or had a great act of disloyalty perpetrated against you. If you've ever seriously been let down by someone or perhaps a group and you wonder what happened. Betrayal and disloyalty, particularly as we're talking about the context of loyalty to the King of Kings, has really a simple answer to it in terms of why there are loyalty breakdowns, why there are, why betrayal happens. And it really boils down to this. It's because what you thought you had wasn't real. It wasn't authentic. Peter um, had a boldness of emotion even before God completely transformed his life. I'm talking about the disciple Peter now. And of course he made all kinds of pronouncements and bravado platitudes to the Lord toward loyalty. But then when that moment of sacrificial commitment came, he failed miserably. And what he found out is that he didn't really have what he thought he had. And you know, that may not be such a big deal in terms of the human plane of things, you know. Betrayal, disloyalty, finding out that we aren't really who we thought we were or don't really have what we thought we had. That may be something that we can get over in the human plane of things, but when we're talking about loyalty to the King of Kings, betrayal and disloyalty, and then finding out that perhaps we don't have what we really thought we had, what we thought we were doing isn't authentic, the stakes are incredibly high. The seriousness of that kind of betrayal, that kind of disloyalty, can prevent a person from entering into the kingdom of heaven itself. And so, um, Jesus delivered, as you know, a series of sermons, and they are recorded in the Gospels. And this morning we are drawing in on one of his last major sermons. It's a tough sermon. A few weeks back we talked about the Sermon of the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about the blessed. But today, as he closes in on one of his final sermons, and certainly his final major sermon, he's not talking about the blessed anymore. He's talking about those who are the opposite of that. Would you turn in your Bibles this morning with me, please, to Matthew chapter 23? 
as we continue on in our series, Loyalty to the King, it really becomes imperative for us to, to hear the words of this sermon. It's a tough sermon. It's a hard one to hear. It's a sermon that he delivered to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in particular. But there were people listening on the sidelines. The disciples. The crowd. And in this particular sermon, he presents to us the issue of disloyalty in all of its bare facts. And um, what strikes us, of course, is um, the temptation to sort of pass over this chapter. It's directed to Pharisees and Sadducees, Pharisees and teachers of the law, people who we know already were holding out as one thing, but we know they weren't really who they said they were, and and so we say, you know, that, that doesn't really apply to us. In fact, this sermon is directed to the really religious elite. Uh, the teachers of the law, these are scriptural lawyers. They scrutinize the word of God. The uh, Pharisees, of course, uh, another term for that, or the meaning of Pharisees is separatists. They had purposely drawn lines of where they would not go, what they would not do. And so he's talking to the religious elite. So I got thinking about that. I thought, maybe it, maybe it is appropriate for us. Because in all of our country, who would you say are the most religious people you know? We don't have Pharisees and teachers of the law. We have Christians. We're it. I mean, think about it. Don't you all have some cousin who says, I've got a cousin who's really religious. They go to church every Sunday. They're, I mean, they're really serious about the Bible. Don't we all have that cousin or somebody in our family who considers us? Or at the workplace who says, that guy who works down there and a couple of desks over, that guy is a serious fanatic about religious things. So, isn't it true that we really are the religious elite of our country most people think we are and we're the ones who uh, ultimately are the advertisement of who God is if there is a God to the people around us who aren't sure and, and so they look at our lives and our lives are from their perspective to represent what who we claim to follow so the words to us as religious elite are particularly important. This is one of those passages of scripture that's more about what to avoid as it is what to do. It's one of those caution texts. It's one of those be careful, beware. It's, it's the woe factor, right? Seven woes. Eight, depending on whether or not you think verse 14 should actually be there. If you're reading along, you'll see verse 13, and then it jumps to verse 15 in most of the translations. Because verse 14 
is not found in the oldest manuscripts. So we'll talk about seven woes today. And I want you in this text this morning to look for four things to look for in genuine ministries and genuine churches and genuine leaders and genuine everyday Christians. We'll take the, the negative, the, the, uh, the caution that Christ puts out here and we'll talk about how, what you should look for in your own life and in the lives of the people whose life you entrust your life to. And so Matthew 23, it seems maybe it would be a good moment for us in this context of loyalty to the king to stand as we read the word of God together, just as an act of loyalty to Christ. We have his word, the word of God, so as an act of loyalty, if you can stand today, let's stand in the presence of the king and, and, and I'll read the text to you. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. By the way, they were there, all of them. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Here's a key phrase. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide. Those are the boxes that they wore on their heads. Look at me. I'm a special religious leader. Make them big. And the tassels on their garments are long so that you can notice who they are. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have only one master and you are all brothers. So why do we call people rabbis? And do not call anyone on earth father for you have no father for you have, sorry, one father, and he is in heaven. So why do we call religious leader father? Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. So why do we give some special designation when we have one teacher? The greatest among you will be your servant, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you blind guides, you say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath, you blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore... 
He who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead man's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in, sh in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers. You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berkiah. Whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those who sent, so those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Boy, we'd like to think that um, this really isn't something we have to pay attention to. It's not directed to us, but to the really religious, we need to hear the word of God today. And I want to share, as I said, four things with you. I want to draw together a couple of these woe statements and build one point from two, and then the last one will be a point. Looking at the first two in verses 13 and 15, I see the word passion there. And by the way, not just any or all passion is good passion. And so what we should be looking for is passion that is authentically gospel-driven. Uh, these people were, um, in verse uh, 13 and 15, they were allegedly passionate about religion. But there's a really um, unnerving statement in verse 13. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces, and you yourselves do not enter. 
nor will you let those enter who are trying to. We just looked last week at, at the great mission of the church that was handed to the disciples. Here are the keys to the kingdom. Go open the doors. Go invite people to come to the gospel, to come to a knowledge of Christ. Welcome them. Be the signpost. Show them the way in. You know who I am. And now he's talking about those who are actually shutting people out of the kingdom of God. And he says to them, you can't even come in because you don't belong. Imagine the religious leaders, the religious elite. And so what we have here is that, that if you can't, that there's a danger here. If you can't direct people to Christ, if you can't be that one who opens the door or shows them the way, something is desperately wrong in your life. It may be that the kingdom is shut to you. These guys were religious frauds, dressed in the finest of religious designer garb, disfiguring the truth, all dressed up and nowhere to go. I think you, like me, have been to funerals where somebody with clerical garb has stood before a grieving family and the company of people and basically completely confused everybody about the truth. Haven't you been there? I've been in the audience of a so-called clergyman of the New Testament and Old Testament scriptures who stood and said, you don't need to repent, you don't need forgiveness of sins. The God of love has enough love for you. To that Jesus would say, not only are you not in the kingdom of heaven, but you are shutting the kingdom of heaven out to those who are trying to come in. Pomp and ceremony with, and the familiarity that goes with that of going through the motions of religious rituals can actually deaden our hearts to the matter of character transformation. Thinking that we are okay inside because we are doing something on the outside that is religious and of course they had a growing following their synagogues were filled with people but we need to be careful in our passion for gathering people and crowds of people we are called to make converts to Christ not to Calvary and not to certain leaders. Large and growing is no litmus test for real. Sometimes we think it is, you know, it must be okay, it must be of God, it's getting bigger. Communism gets bigger. There are plenty of religious hucksters out there in the North American context that are zealously selling humanistic ideas not Christian truth and their followings are growing it says here in verse 15 you go you travel over land and sea to win a single convert uh, the true and the false have the same missionary zeal
Jesus asked them, why didn't you believe what John the Baptist said? It says in the text in Matthew 21, 45, that the Pharisees felt convicted by the parables themselves, believing that he was talking about them. But instead of allowing it to convict their hearts, as we follow along in the next chapters in 2146, they plotted to arrest him. In 2215, they plotted to trap him. In, in uh, verses 22, or chapter 2215 and uh, 23 and 34, they, they set out to demean his teaching. Instead of looking to enter into the kingdom of God, they looked for ways to shut people out of the kingdom of God, including themselves. We know uh, historically that they didn't listen to Jesus. We know by the crucifixion, but we also know as the history of the early Christians continued by the year 85 AD, which was just uh, several years before the Gospel of John was recorded. The Jewish leaders decided to add a so-called blessing to their list of blessings which was really a curse. But they called it a blessing because you can't utter a curse in church, in the synagogue, in the religious context, called the Berkath Hamanim, the so-called blessing of the heretics. And the purpose of it was to flush out those who might be in the synagogue who had become followers of Christ. And the blessing goes this way, translated into English. Let Christians, ha Natsarim in Hebrew, and heretics, ha-manim, perish in a moment. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and let them not be written with the righteous. And so they invited the company in the synagogue to stand and repeat the blessings of which they put this blessing in. And of course, no Christian could utter that, let Christians perish. And in that way, they weeded the Christians out of the synagogue and knew who they should flog and persecute. You hypocrites, Jesus said. You blind guides. You snakes, you vipers. What about um, the kinds of things that are important in our life? So passion should be authentically gospel-driven, but what about what we think is important? In verses 16 through 24, there's a couple more woes here. And you'll see actually a word that is used by Jesus three times that sort of sets the tone for this section. It's the word blind. You should be looking for emphases that are scripturally precise, Jesus said, versus rather than what these blind guides are, the journey these blind guides are taking you on. You know, if you were noticing as we were reading along, they, had a, they were creating an elaborate um, 
series of, uh, of uh, verbal gyrations and, and gymnastics on, on how to manipulate the, the word of God, manipu manipulate the things of God. They were saying such things uh, when people came and, and, and were adjudicating some case in front of them. Well, did they, did they swear by the temple or did they swear by the gold and the temple? And they were like, well, I don't really remember. Well, they said, oh, we only swore, swore by the temple. Well, then what you promised doesn't have to be kept. Because on, if, you, if you had sworn by the gold in the temple, then, of course, we would have to hold you to that. And they were de developing these elaborate and, 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 uh, and circuitous, manipulative ways of, uh, of, uh, of handling the things of God. Intentionally misshaping biblical ideas. Beware of ministries or people that complicate the scriptures or twist them or manipulate them or hold to special sayings or incantations or dreams or visions. Man-made ideas, not Christ-driven ones. Beware. I don't want to be misunderstood, but basically Jesus is saying here, you should be letting your yes be yes and your no be no. You should be very precise about the things of God and the word of God. That's what he's saying here. Otherwise, you're a blind guide. Now, um, as I said, I don't want to be understood, but I do want to bring a, a, a serious application to you here. Um, there are modern-day versions of manipulating the things of God in a variety of ways, but one of the ways that we often use against each other or use toward each other is to say, God told me. God told you. Did you have a counseling appointment with him? In what way did God tell you? Well, he just told me to do this or to say that or to go here or to go there. Uh, giving the idea that, that each of us are entitled to some sort of relationship with God that has private revelation. Now, I want, as I said, I don't want to be misunderstood. When we come to faith in Christ, we are granted the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And what is the role of that Holy Spirit? He is to change our lives by directing us to the Word of God. The spirit of truth who will lead you into truth. His role is to lead us to Jesus Christ. And I'm not for one second suggesting you don't have a communication relationship with God through faith in Christ. But be very, very, very careful when you are using and invoking the name of God to claim this or that and use his authority to give your idea authority. 
that idea from God must always square with the scriptures or the idea isn't from God. And so when you are speaking for God, you have entered into a holy, solemn realm of the sacred. And Jesus is saying here to the Pharisees, don't you understand about the temple? The temple is the dwelling place of the living God. You don't throw that around cheaply to one another and say, if I swear this way, if I swear that way. Don't you understand about the altar, the place of sacrifice, very significant in the realm of the sacred. You don't throw that around. And so it is with us. When we use the name of God, we have entered into the realm of the sacred. Make sure when you are representing the words and ideas of God that they actually are. And the safest way is to say, here's what God's word says, so here's why I'm going to do this or do that or say this or say that. Now, we are to make certain that we're not blindly in the midst of God's work and not doing God's will. Bribing God for favor by our service and our money. He points out that they are tithing on their spices. And that not only are they tithing on the sort of the grand uh, volume of their spices, but they're separating them out, the mint and the, the cumin, and, and, and actually tithing on that. In fact, they're, they're, they're actually overturning their carpets and trying to find dust there and saying, I'm going to tithe on that dust. I mean, these people were meticulous about certain fine details. But when it came to justice or mercy or being faithful, the, the very kinds of things that the prophets spoke about in, for instance, Micah 6.8, that were so important to God, they absolutely ignored. When people came to them for justice or came to them and needed mercy or, or when they, they were asked to honor a promise or a vow that they made or how they swore an oath in God's name they they absolutely abandoned it and Jesus says you were right to tithe but you were completely wrong when you missed the great matters of God's heart toward justice and mercy and faithfulness toward one another and toward God and so you are blind guides Using high and lofty spiritual language as a smokescreen to cover the fact that you lack justice and mercy and faithfulness, the very core realities of the living God. Beware of people who are always outwardly measuring their spiritual superstar status to the very detail, making sure you know exactly how much and how many. For all to see and hear how holy our activity is. Jesus said to them, You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. Now, he's talking about fasting there when they would um, take the wine and they would strain it before they drank it during a fast, breaking after the fast, to make sure that no gnats had fallen into the wine 
because gnats were unclean. And Jesus was making the point, that's, that's good, that's amazing. But don't you know that camels are unclean and you're swallowing them? It was a little act of humor on Jesus' part. A little chuckle in the audience is probably appropriate. We can be so careful with the easy fine details but miss the heart of God by a mile. Which transitions us into the third here. Uh, what people are careful to show in public while the private is a total mess. It's interesting here in these uh, next several verses, 25 to 28, next two woes, that it was really the cleanest, and I put quotation marks around them, it was the cleanest people that really were distressing Jesus. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who everybody thought had it all together. So um, when we're talking about what the outside looks like, Jesus says, you should be looking for a clean exterior that is authentic because the inside is real. The question he's asking is, but do you stink on the inside? He gives this picture of... Um, Cleaning a cup on the outside, really polishing it up, and cleaning a bowl on the outside, really making it look really nice. Presumably because you're going to use it to drink something and eat something. But the inside of the cup and the inside of the bowl is disgusting. Now, who puts food on top of the disgusting inside of a bowl? Wouldn't it be better? If the outside of the bowl were messy, but the inside were clean? And Jesus makes the point, if the inside is clean, it's probably because you've cleaned the whole bowl. And he gives this picture. And he uses words like greed and self-indulgence and wickedness. From self-deception, a little before, now he moves on to, to um, self-indulgence, which, which can be um, nuanced to say uh, uncontrolled sensuality, lack of self-control. That's, that's what this word really means, this indulgence. It leads to robbing people of precious things for personal gratification. Now, um, these people are really careful to make sure their public persona is really good, all the while knowing that they are a mess inside. And most of us know the truth about ourselves. I think what Jesus is teaching here, at least... Uh, one of the things he's teaching is that we should leave no stone unturned in our own life or the lives to which we give ourselves. The Sunday school teacher who looks really good on Sunday but sexually molests his daughters on Monday is not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. The person leading at the prayer table who has bitterness toward the people sitting across from him, from us, from him, 
or her has an unclean inside. That businessman who um, is a leader in the church but deceives his customers so that he can or she can have great wealth is dirty on the inside. Religious robes have not prevented children from being sexually molested. You know, we ask when we hire Christian leaders for an employment history. I wonder if it wouldn't be better to ask for referrals from the string of girlfriends that they've left behind. There are signs, you know, that the outside is masking something very bad on the inside. There are signs if you look. Selfishness, sensuality, materialistic, justifying cheating, fixated on gain, self-control issues. People full of God will never be full of themselves. And prosperity teaching further fuels the horrible superficial Christianity that Jesus is talking about here. And so he paints this picture about being whitewashed sepulchers. Most of us have probably seen these above-ground ossuaries. Have you seen these things? They are square, large, square, ornate boxes or stone, carved stone containers, which are beautiful on the outside. To put dead rotting, stinky bodies in. And Jesus said, you may have a really beautiful ossuary, but it still is holding rotting, stinky bones of dead things. And he talked about whitewashing them so that everybody could see them. Because if you touched something that was dead, you were unclean. And Jesus says, you think because you paint the outside so people will notice it and veer away from it that it still isn't dead on the inside. There's only one cleanup needed that's clean up on aisle heart. That's what Jesus is saying here. You clean up aisle heart, and all the rest will be clean. The outside will take care of itself. Well, there's a final one here, the final woe of seven. It's the one where the hypocrites are building tombs for the prophets and decorating the graves of the righteous. They're ministry killers, you know. Jesus said you should be looking for authentic ministry practices that are focused on scripture, on righteousness, and on a present Jesus rather than venerating past traditions. So many 
religious movements over the ages have been studies in missing the biblical point. Because all they can see is the tradition, the ritual. One writer puts it this way, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we are not a movement of traditions. But rather the living revelation of Christ. That's who we are. That's the difference. That's what makes us different. The point of the prophets and the prophecies is Jesus. The, the, the tragedy of, of this event is Jesus is standing in front of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He is the point of all that they'd heard and the rituals that they'd been practicing. That's why when, on, the, on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus walked up and, and, and started walking with the two, and, and from, the, from Moses and the prophets, he says he was, he was teaching them that all of these things were pointing to him. He was able to say, listen, look at that. Look at that ceremony. Don't you realize the Passover lamb? Don't you realize what that was about? Don't you understand what the, the Ark of Noah was about? Don't you understand what the Ark of the Covenant was about? Don't you understand that those things pointed to me? And now you've stopped the process because the process has, the end goal has become the tradition itself. The end goal has become the ceremony and keeping the ceremony and keeping the ritual. And they were all to point to me. I am the point, Christ says. How horrible to miss the point in the very context of what's to bring you to the point. And so they say to him, you know, if we had been around in those days when they were killing the prophets, we never would have done that. We never would have done that. And Jesus says, your very words, in verse 31, your very words testify against you. Why? Because they've already allowed John the Baptist to be killed for his message, and now they're plotting to kill the point, Jesus Christ. What do you mean you wouldn't have done it if you were back there? You're doing it now. You're about to do it. You're contemplating doing it. In fact, you're making the grave look really nice where you're going to bury the righteous. You're going to kill the ministry. It's so easy for us to think we wouldn't have been like that. Or we wouldn't be like that person. Or we can take this text and say, well, that's not me. Sometimes we deceive ourselves. There's a little bit of us here, you know. We really need to face our own bad faith so we don't repeat the sins of the past because we are really the horrors of our forefathers. Our friends to the south, with this I'll wrap it up. Our friends to the south, um, once a year, give great honor to Martin Luther King Jr. And they all say, you know, wow, we would have never, ever mistreated a whole sector of people if we had been back there 
we would have never treated civil rights uh, people who were championing civil rights like that. It does no good to have these great ceremonies and congratulate ourselves about what we would or wouldn't do in the past when we're still harboring in our hearts all kinds of racial prejudice. Jesus wants us to honestly recognize who we are and learn to fight the enemy and not the righteous. Spiritual deceptiveness can run along generational lines if not abruptly halted by the transformative power of Christ. And you are the generation now to stop it and be loyal to Christ. That's the call from Christ here today. That's who you should look for in a ministry. That's who you should look for in a church. That's what you should look for in people, and that's what you should look for in your everyday living before Christ yourself. Our Father, cause us to reassess the grand statements we make about loyalty in the context of what you consider loyal, I pray. For Jesus' sake, amen. The reason that day Christ stood before that great crowd and delivered that sermon was so that they might repent. That's the opportunity that's presented. <coughs> repent. You don't have to live this way. And so that offer goes out today as well. Repent. But he also made it abundantly clear as he was winding that sermon down that there's always a last time to hear a message. There will always be the last time. Either you will perish and die or Christ himself will come back. And he told them that this was the last time they were going to hear that message from him. He said, you won't hear this again until they cry out, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that was his coming again. And some will respond with great joy because they've heard his message. And others, with great sorrow, because the time has run out. So make sure that your passions are gospel-driven. Make sure that your emphases are scripturally precise. Make sure that the outside is a reflection of a good inside. And make sure that uh, you follow Christ with all of your heart and realize that he is the point. Not the ceremony. Not the ritual. Not the tradition. It's a present Christ and his purposes for you. Our Father, I pray this morning, as you release us from this gathering, that we will not be released from our thoughts around these things, but that you might bring our lives in total alignment to loyalty to the King, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Mm -hmm.